and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be joined in just a few moments by Carol Rose, who is the Executive Director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. First, a bit of a fish wrap for you. Today's newspapers, tomorrow's fish wrap, and today's fish wrap is about last night's Republican debate. A few thoughts. First, who won? Who won was Donald Trump. We'll get back to that in just a second. As for those participants who had things to say last night, my view is that Nikki Haley presented herself as someone who won in the sense that if she could become the Republican presidential candidate, she would be a force to be reckoned with and the Democrats would be in a lot of trouble. She came off as uh, competent and of the next generation and smart and most importantly, not crazy. And I think she would appeal broadly enough to uh, Republican women suburban women who are significant in the voting in those swing states. Bill, let me ask you Nikki, a question about this. Nikki Haley last night said uh, that she is unabashedly pro-life, but she said she's seeking a consensus on abortion. What did she? I didn't understand what she meant by that. Uh, she was looking for a middle ground without saying, I'm not going to sign a federal nationwide abortion ban. Uh, she was fudging but she came off as somewhat reasonable. And I think that she presented herself as a person who could get those swing votes. And I don't know exactly what she meant, except I wasn't, she was saying, I'm not going to get uh, pigeonholed into a position I don't want to have to deal with later on in the campaign. Nikki Haley's problem, of course, is she's not going to win the Republican primary. Most likely. She's gotten no traction so far, but if she does, she will be formidable. Ron DeSantis uh, looked totally scripted. If he was looking for a breakout moment, he didn't get it. He wasn't treated like the heir apparent to an unsuccessful Donald Trump campaign. Uh, he was largely ignored. He did not make much of an impression. He said what he was scripted to go in and say, but I don't think he helped himself any. I don't think he hurt himself a lot but I don't think he made an impression that was significant. As for Chris Christie, well, uh, he made some points, but he didn't have Trump there, so he didn't have his punching bag, and he just doesn't have a chance in this Republican primary. Mike Pence looked presidential, which I think really helped him. Uh, he hurt himself in terms of a national election by having some very extreme positions because he has those extreme positions. But he is a winner from last night. His campaign, I think, now is more relevant and will get more attention. Senator Tim Scott, well, I think he kept himself significantly in the vice presidential sweepstakes, uh, but I don't think he did anything really to make himself stand out <clears throat> as a presidential contender in the Republican primaries. Uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. Um, boy, is he obnoxious. But I think that for uh, Trump supporters, he's the next generation. And Trump came out, his campaign came out this morning and said, yes, we really like that guy. He did a great job last night. So uh, as a stalking horse for making, stalking horse for Trump and making Trumpian points, I think uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy uh, really did score. He was a significant presence. Uh, he was just simply totally obnoxious. Uh, as for the two lesser uh, governors, uh, North D Dakota Governor uh, Doug uh, Burgum and former Arkansas Governor Asa 
Asa Hutchinson, Asa Hutchinson, uh, goodness, uh, they actually were logical and reasonable uh, from a Republican right-wing point of view, but they just didn't make an impression. They weren't terribly relevant going into this debate, and in my judgment, they are not terribly relevant coming out of it. The big winner last night was Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was the big winner because he was the uh, clear front runner going into this debate, and he is the clear front runner coming out of it. And so the question that remains is what will these debates, upcoming debates, do to the Republican uh, field? And it will winnow it somewhat, I suspect, but. I don't think it's going to do much, at least at this point, there's no reason to anticipate that it's going to do much to the position of Donald Trump as the uh, front runner in the Republican primaries. The interesting thing, of course, is that, well, maybe there could be a trial of Donald Trump before all the primaries take place. <clears throat> and if he were convicted, that seems to me is the only fact they could stand in the way of his winning this primary because the indictments don't seem to make any difference. At least that's what the polling indicates. Carol Rose, you're the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. You've been a defender of First Amendment rights for your entire legal career. You were a reporter, an international reporter in war zones before you became a lawyer. I would like to know your impression, and I'd like you to share with our listeners, if you would, your analysis of Donald Trump saying with regard to the indictments, the federal indictments, with regard to the attempted uh, uh, overthrow of the uh, election results, both federally and in Georgia. Uh, Donald Trump says, I have a First Amendment right to say what I wanted. There was a fraudulent election. I won. I should have been elected. I could have been elected. But th th what happened here is simply un-American. Uh, and, and Pence, of course, failed. Uh, I, I want to say one more thing, because I, I did not mention Mike Pence, I don't think, in my first analysis. Mike Pence, I think, came off quite presidential last night, and I think he got a very good moment when the other candidates either did or did not support him and say, yes, you stood up for the Constitution. You stood up for the Constitution when you certified the election. And I think that, uh, for example, when uh, the candidates did not say, yes, Mike Pence, you did the right thing, and particularly when Go Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said, oh, he did the right thing, and just went on and just skipped over it. He made himself look weak and kind of gutless, frankly. But let me go back. Carol Rose, the First Amendment. Trump says it protects me from these charges. Does it? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's really great to be here, uh, Buzz and Bill. Um, I, I enjoy your analysis of the debate last night, Bill. I have to tell you, I was playing uh, debate bingo uh, with friends while watching, and uh, I almost won. I almost won. <laughs> uh, but, and I, I just want to mention um, to that point as well, um, wow, where have we come in this country where the question of whether or not upholding the Constitution is the right thing to do is actually up for debate? Um, so that's, um, regardless of the oath to uphold, um, it's amazing that there are that many people who are, think they could be president and don't think that upholding the Constitution is part of the job. So that was pretty telling to me. Um, so let's talk a minute about what's going on with these indictments. Um, I mean, right now, it's pretty interesting to think, uh, you know, former President Trump now has, what, 91 charges across four separate indictments in four different jurisdictions. 
uh, while he's running for president in 2024. That's just a remarkable historic moment just to stop and think about. 91 charges across four separate indictments. It's just nuts. Um, in terms of his, his and I want to say that, you know, the ACLU believes strongly in due process and everybody's innocent until proven guilty. Um, at the same time, no one is above uh, the law. And I think that's really important that we keep that in mind. The notion that Trump, uh, you know, has a free speech right uh, to break the law, he, of course he does. And the indictment itself, this is the Jack Smith federal indictment, um, basically starts out by saying that Trump had a right, and I'll quote it, had a right like every American to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely that there had been an outcome determinative fraud during the elections and that he had won. So the indictment itself says that Trump had a First Amendment right, has a First Amendment right to say those things, even falsely. But the problem was not Donald Trump's speech. It was his alleged actions, um, you know, his attempts to get state officials to invalidate the results and declare him the winner, uh, the, his attempts to compel the Justice Department to claim that it had uncovered substantial evidence of fraud when it had not, in fact, uncovered any fraud, uh, to support efforts to create fake set of electors, to vote him into office in the states where he lost. That's not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, his efforts to urge Vice President Mike Pence to refuse to certify the lawful election results. You know, if I walk into a bank and I say, uh, I pass a note to the teller and said, you know, your money or your life, that's not protected by free speech. Um, the fact that he used words in the uh, in carrying out these alleged crimes doesn't protect him or shield him. So the First Amendment doesn't shield you from otherwise committing crimes. And, and so I think it's really important that people understand that, yes, we all have a free speech right to say what we believe, even to say falsely what we believe. Um, you know, that's protected speech. But you can't hide behind the First Amendment to avoid um, being indicted or ultimately maybe convicted for crimes. Um, and so I think that's really an important distinction that our listeners need to understand. Well, stay with that for a minute, because Trump says, wait a second, I went on public television, I went on the media, and I, I accessed the media, and I made statements about what I believed. It was a fraudulent election, and I'm entitled to say that. And I'm entitled to say that publicly, and I'm entitled to say it privately, and I'm entitled to say to people, and you as loyal Americans should do what you can to make sure that the election that I won comes out that way. What's, why is he wrong about that? Well, I, I don't think that's what he was indicted for. I think what he's indicted for uh, you know, was calling an election official in Georgia and saying, find me 11,000 11, votes. Go find those votes. You know, what was he indicted for uh, was trying to uh, you know, coerce the Justice Department to say it had evidence of fraud when it didn't. What he's indicted for is trying to you know, get people to create a fake set of electors, to vote them into office. Um, you know, those are crimes. Um, if that's what he did, those are crimes. And they aren't protected by the by the First Amendment, even if you use your words to coerce people, use your words to tr to conspire to create, a, you know, a, a overthrow an election. Um, those aren't protected, even if you use your words in the commission of the crime. It's the crime, not the words, that he was indicted for. Although the words will actually be at issue, I think, because Trump will say, when he said to the Georgia Secretary of State, find 11,000 votes, oh, that meant you only have to find the 11,000. There actually were hundreds of thousands that were stolen from me. But in order for me to win for the results to be what it should have been, 
that you only need to find 11,000. So it's not, he will argue, clear that he was saying to do something illegal. He was saying you only had to do the minimum to make the result what it should have been. I mean, he's going to make arguments like that, isn't he? Oh, he is going to make those arguments. But I think that they're nonsense arguments. And if and if that becomes, if that's something that ultimately the court's rule uh, is protected by the First Amendment, there are an awful lot of other people in this country who should be, you know, out of jail uh, because they only use their words in committing a crime. And I, I just think it's really important that we all keep in mind that what's good for the goose in chief is good for everybody else. Uh, this is Buzz, uh, Carol Rose. I, I really enjoyed the, listening to you two just then. I, in the back of my mind, I've got this little screaming fear, which is in Georgia, they're going to be choosing a jury. And when I think about the demographics of, jury, of, of people in Georgia and the, the political mm-hmm. makeup of Georgia, are we going to be able to get 12 people, not one of whom is going to be parroting what Bill was saying, which is Donald Trump truly believed he was vindicating a wrongful theft of an election. How do we make sure that we convince that one person? That's a great question. First, I mean, it's in Fulton County, which is a more uh, progressive than a lot of the others. Um, You know, it's funny, right after the, uh, in the election, when Georgia actually went blue, I I talked to the executive director of the ACLU down there, and I said, wow, you know, who knew that that Georgia was going to be turned from red to blue? And her response was, Georgia wasn't, didn't turn from, from red to blue. It was always blue. The votes were just suppressed. Um, and so until now. Uh, and so I think one of the things that we all need to keep in mind is how important it is that people go to the polls, how important it is that we continue, and the ACLU is doing this work, to protect voters, voting rights and the ability of people to exercise their franchise, that most fundamental of rights, um, because that's more important than all these indictments and court cases is that people are turn up to vote and they're allowed to. Um, And just last week in in two different ACLU lawsuits, one in Georgia and one in Texas, uh, we ruled against these anti-voter restrictions. The courts ruled against it. Um, You know, so there was like a Georgia law, you all probably recall, that was banning providing food and water to voters waiting in line uh, of more than 150 feet from polling places. uh, And another one that required voters to include their birth date on absentee ballots. Um, And in Texas... Uh, there was a law that required Texas election officials to reject mail ballots and applications for ID mistakes on election paperwork. So, you know, there's efforts um, like all across the country, but particularly in these southern states to try to prevent people from voting. And so it's really important that we continue to push back and fight against these anti-voter rights um, laws that are being pushed. Because I think that if the American people know and can see what's happening, whether we're in Fulton County, Georgia, or anywhere else, that they're going to, and they're able to go to the polls, they're able to exercise their right to vote, um, that they'll do the right thing. And so I have to say, while I think these indictments are important, I think these court cases are going to be important to watch. Ultimately, the most important thing is that the American people are able to vote. And when they do, they generally do the right thing. Two of the sets of indictments are in state court. Two are in federal court. If Trump were to be reelected, he could pardon himself or have his Justice Department dismiss the federal indictments. That said, he can't do that with regard to the indictments in New York, which is, I think, a pretty small player in in this act. Um, But Stormy Stormy Daniels. Yeah, it's it's the payoff. uh, but the Georgia indictment is really uh, 
a major, major obstacle and uh, I think a frightening potential jail sentence, prison sentence for Donald Trump. How does that possibly play out, this state court indictment and a against a president or a president-elect of the United States? Can you give us the law on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a really important point, Bill. Um, you know, somebody said to me, you know, is it possible that if if Trump is indicted, he won't be able to cast a ballot, but he could be a he could be the president, um, you know, if he's convicted. Um, so I think what's going to happen. So the diff, one of the things to think about is the indictment that Jack Smith brought, the federal indictment around the insurrection, didn't name any um, co-conspirators. It was really just uh, Donald Trump. Um, and so the question is, are those co-conspirators? They could be added later, but would they come? Are they going to turn evidence against uh, Trump? I think in Fulton. Um, Fannie Willis did, in fact, name a whole bunch of people. Uh, and so they're gonna, there's going to be more pressure because they won't be able to be pardoned by Trump if he gets elected. And so they're more likely to come forward. And it raises the specter if, in fact, he's indicted on these state charges down in uh, Florida, in um, Georgia, you know, is he going to be, could he be president from a jail cell? That would be remarkable. That would be crazy. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons that his lawyers are trying so hard to try to what they call remove the case from the state courts to the federal courts, because they think they're especially concerned about that indictment. Right. And if they could remove the case to federal court, then right. it would be a federal case and presumably yeah. would be subject to either the pardon power of the president or the decisions made by the Department of Justice. We are speaking with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. We're going to continue this conversation, and we're going to turn our attention as well to what is happening to what was a major issue debated last night, which is the right to abortion, what's happening in the courts. It's quite frightening in many ways, perhaps hopeful. We'll find out right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! Football season kicks off Saturday from New Mexico State against the Aggies. Join me and Patriots legend Pete Brock starting with a pregame show at 6.30 right here on your new home for UMass football, WHMP. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, -on -one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. 
A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Carol Rose, who is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts, a segment we call Writing Wrongs. Carol, in the Republican debate last night, abortion was an issue that was hotly debated. And I would like to turn our attention and your attention to what is happening in the courts around abortion because the potential for a really horrifying decision is really front and center. It's also possible that that horrifying decision won't come down. Then the case that I'm referring to specifically is the one out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and a decision made about mifepristone, which is the drug that is used for over half of the abortions in the United States. A restriction on that would be, in effect, a, a very huge imposition and curtailment of the right to reproductive choice. Tell us what's going on. Tell us what the ACLU is doing. And help me out. Tell me it's going to be okay. <laughs> well, it's going to be okay for now. Uh, so mifepristone is a, a abortion medi medicine that's used in more than half of abortion care, just what you said. Um, and it's really also important to remember it plays a critical role in miscarriage management care. Um, and so... It, the notion that the courts are you know, involved in this is really upsetting. But anyway, more than 100 studies across dozens of countries uh, have consistently confirmed that mifepristone is safe and effective. Um, and, and when the FDA approved it back in 2000, it took more than four years of tests and studies and things. So it wasn't done uh, you know, randomly or, or quickly. Um, and then and to show how safe it is, it's actually safer than Tylenol and safer than Viagra. Uh, when it comes to serious medical complications. So mifepristone is safe and it's effective and it should be widely available to people. Um, but instead we have a situation where a judge in Texas who was sort of a hand-picked judge down in Texas, as people probably remember, uh, decided to overturn the FDA's approval, um, which raises all sorts of issues, not only on mifepristone, but on other drugs. Because if the courts can come in and, and overrule the FDA and the FDA's expertise, that raises all sorts of you know, questions for all sorts of drug manufacturing and drug research and development and testing and things like that. So it, it's really that this case has widespread implications on our health care, even beyond abortion and miscarriage care. Uh, and so that early judge, the, the judge, uh, Matthew Kismark, back in April, tried to overturn the FDA's decades-old approval of mifepristone. 
the Fifth Circuit said, well, no, you can't go back to 2000, but you can go back to a subsequent FDA ruling that made it more widely available um, back in 20, I think, 16. Uh, so in effect, what the Fifth Circuit's new ruling, which came down on August 16th of this year, uh, is saying is that, uh, among other things, the ruling would prohibit people from receiving mifepristone in the mail and instead require them to travel. Uh, sometimes hundreds of miles into other states just to pick up the medication. Uh, it would um, basically impose all sorts of restrictions that only doctors can prescribe it. Uh, you can't get it in the mail, all sorts of things. And now the immediate, you know, good news, I guess, if there is any, um, is that this case is stayed. The Supreme Court has stayed the case, the ruling. So right now, mifepristone continues to be available uh, nationwide and here in the Massachusetts. So that's really important that people understand that right now it's still possible to get access to mifepristone without going through these restrictions. Um, the Supreme Court, uh, there'll be an effort to urge the Supreme Court to take up the case. Um, you know, best case scenario, uh, the court rules that the pe people who brought the case don't have a right to bring it. In other words, they don't have what's called standing to bring the case because it's just a couple of named doctors who said that they're upset by it. Um, they're not really involved. Uh, in in this. And so usually if you don't have any involvement in a matter, you can't just file a lawsuit. The, the courts will throw you out and say you don't have standing to bring the lawsuit. So the good news is there's a possibility the Supreme Court could just duck or, or throw this out. Probably not, though, because this court is so ideologically bent um, on taking away access to abortion and miscarriage care. Uh, and so more likely the court will take it up in the coming term and there'll be arguments uh, sometime between October and June and an issue and a decision will come down and it will have really widespread implications for the ability to access abortion and miscarriage care. Let's unpack a couple of the things that you just mentioned, Carol Rose. One aspect of the case I'd like you to spend a moment on has to do with what the Fifth Circuit looked at. It said, as I understand it, we can't go back to the initial approval by the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA, of mifepristone, mifepristone because that goes back to, that, to the year 2000, and, right. and the statute of limitations on a challenge to that has, has gone by. So right. you can't go back to that. But the statute of limitations has not gone by, has not expired with regard to what happened in 2016. And therefore, we, the judges, have the right to decide whether or not the FDA got it right. Is that an oversimplification or too too much of an oversimplification? That's, that's, that's a really perfect uh, description of what the courts have ruled and where we stand right now. That's exactly right. With regard to this, the ability to access uh, this widely used and very safe uh, abortion drug. Uh, is this something that affects us in Massachusetts potentially? And what does it mean that the uh, Healy administration has, I think, bought a million doses? I mean, it's a very large, it's a very large number. Right. So last April, um, when the first ruling came down, sort of trying to ban it altogether, uh, Governor Maura Healy did great things. She announced steps that we're taking to uh, stockpile doses of mifepristone, at, actually at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, they purchased about 15,000 doses. Um, okay, I, I, was, I was a little high on the number. <laughs> she also issued an executive order 
that basically said that the 2022 shield law that the Massachusetts legislature passed uh, applies to medication abortion, including mifepristone, um, and then also instructed the Department of Public Health here in Massachusetts to issue implementing guidelines. Uh, and so together, these are the kind of uh, protections that Governor Healy has taken to ensure that providers can continue to um, prescribe and to dispense mifepristone in Massachusetts. So that was really good. Um, she also instructed the Massachusetts Division of Insurance uh, to issue guidance to help implement the order so that it would be provided to support public universities and colleges um, and so that these uh, places where people often uh, need uh, to seek abortion and miscarriage care can sort of be ready and have readiness plans. Um, and so I, and, and then the last thing was in March, the Massachusetts Board of Registry in Pharmacy um, issued guidance to all the pharmacies here in the Commonwealth, um, requiring that they are required to stock and dispense all reproductive health medications, including mifepristone. Carol Rose, tell us this. If the Supreme Court takes the case on its merits, that is, it does not decide it on the basis of standing and throw it out, which, by the way, we should point out to our listeners, would mean that some other plaintiffs in another case coming right after it would have standing. They'll figure out the standing issue, and the issue will go right back up to the Supreme Court. Does this prevent people from accessing medical care in Massachusetts and having the drugs, for example, mailed to them in a state that prohibits abortion? Right. So if, in fact, the court were to uphold the Fifth Circuit, if the Supreme Court were to uphold the Fifth Circuit ruling, uh, mifepristone would still be available. Um, it would be in a, a dosage. Actually, it's too high. <laughs> the FDA lowered the dosage that's required, so it would have to go back to the previous too high dosage or higher dosage. Um, but people would be able to access it. There would just be a lot of restrictions, like you wouldn't be able to uh, get it at a pharmacy. You'd have to definitely, uh, you know, travel to go to see a doctor. I think the larger question is whether or not what would happen to people in places like Texas and Florida and Louisiana and Alabama and you name it, um, where they've put a ban on accessing this to then that would create um, concerns for people who are mailing uh, mifepristone because that's different um, than having to travel in person to get it from your doctor. And that can be hard to do when you're really in a remote place. You know, and so I think that's the real danger here. Um, you know, this is a safe drug. And so for the courts to step into the shoes of the FDA and to try to tell people what the rules should be about drugs is just like, it's nuts, actually. Um, and again, as I said before, the issue isn't only around access to abortion and miscarriage care. The issue is also every other drug out there because if the, the, the drug companies and the research companies um, are going to be the, the whole playing field will change because they that's like well I, I, we got access to FDA approval we won FDA approval we did our tests we jumped through the hoops uh, we got approval and then suddenly you know six seven years later a court can come in and say oh we're we're taking that approval away I mean that creates such chaos in the marketplace in terms of drug development and medical development uh, that the implications are incredibly widespread on abortion care, but also on everything else. Peter Laurie, a former commissioner of the FDA, said, I don't know what the FDA is going to look like after this. It, it, it's impossible to reshape its mission in the face of non-scientists making these decisions wearing robes. 
you know that's exactly right buzz and you know what's so crazy for anybody who knows who's and i'm not certainly not an expert on drug development but i know that it takes many many years of research and development and money uh, up front and it's a high risk proposition and to increase the risk in the landscape by thinking that once you win fda approval a court could come in and take it away uh, on behalf of some people who don't really have standing who aren't really involved just because they're offended by it um it's just like really disruptive um, to our economy, really disruptive to our uh, advancement of medicine in this country. Um, and again, also really disruptive to access to abortion and miscarriage care. And you know, poll after poll in this country shows that people want to be able to get mifepristone uh, and misoprostol, which is another but less um, uh, effective in some ways abortion drug. Uh, Two thirds of the American people want abortion pills to remain accessible including 51% of Republicans. Um, you know, eight in 10 Americans support the legal right to abortion, including a third of Republicans. So we just know that voters, again, you know, we keep going back to the voters. We keep, why it's so important for people to register to vote and to exercise their right to vote uh, and to ensure that voting rights are protected against all these efforts to take them away. Um, because that's where we have recourse. Um, if, we, if we can, exercise our franchise, if we can get people into power who are going to be able to uphold these rights, it's going to be terribly important because we cannot rely on this uh, extreme U.S. Supreme Court to protect our fundamental constitutional rights and liberties. We've been speaking with Carol Rose. She's the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. This is a segment we call Writing Wrongs. Carol Rose, thanks so very much. It's great to be here always. Take care. Bye-bye. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Tensions were high during a virtual public meeting last night of the Amherst Pelham and Union 26 school committees. Dozens of residents waited for members to approve minutes and return to the forum to answer a list of questions from concerned parents. Many were unhappy about the rights of transgender students, Title IX issues, and the recent departure of Dr. Michael Morris. The agenda for the public meeting, which was scheduled to begin after only 20 minutes of closed session, included reorganization of the school committee, public comments, an update on the superintendent's departure, and filling the vacancy, as well as an update on LGBTQ plus supports. The Planning Board in Northampton will meet tonight with two significant projects on the agenda. Plans for an extended-stay 109-room hotel on Conn Street at the former site of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, as well as plans for a new six-story affordable housing building behind City Hall will be discussed. The board also plans to discuss two other affordable housing projects tonight, the former Moose Lodge site on Cook Avenue and a project on Evergreen Road in Leeds that are both being developed by the city. A judge Wednesday sentenced a Springfield man to a state prison term in connection with a 2021 sexual assault on an Amherst woman. 32-year-old Michael Pope pleaded guilty in Hampshire Superior Court to three counts of rape, two counts of indecent assault and battery, and one count of providing alcohol to a person under 21 years of age. The crimes took place in an Amherst apartment. Pope was sentenced to three to three and a half years in state prison, followed by four years of supervised probation. 
Clouds on the increase this morning. Scattered showers this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Scattered showers this evening and then a heavier and steadier rain overnight, a low of 58 to 64. Rain tomorrow morning giving way to scattered showers in the afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Chance for a shower or two on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Vice President of Mortgage Originations at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Did you know now is the perfect time to save on your mortgage? I'm mortgage originator Kimberly Gates. That's right, at Greenfield Co-op, it pays to get pre-approved. I'm mortgage originator Jessica Eau Claire. If you're looking to buy a home, be sure to get a GCB pre-approval to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan amount, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. This is our segment called Have Faith. We have many religious leaders and occasionally some agnostics and atheists to share their perspective as well. Generally, we have religious leaders from congregations throughout the valley. And today we have with us Carol Bull, who is the Reverend of the United Church of Ware. She had a really interesting conversation with Buzz last week when I wasn't here about uh, progressive Christianity, um, and I think it's a conversation that we want to continue to have. Uh, Buzz, what was your impression of that conversation? Well, uh, what I learned from that conversation was about pro progressive Christianity and some of the uh, more um, relevant um, issues that those who uh, are interested in progressive Christianity are focused on, which are current issues that bear on today, not necessarily on 5,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Well, and the Reverend Carol, Carol Bull was uh, incredibly instructive to me 
on what it was all about. Um, so uh, I think that she could tell us a little bit more about progressive Christianity. And Carol Bull, I would appreciate your your elucidating more about that. And in particular, I'd appreciate your directing your attention to what was, well, eight people on a stage running for president last night, seven of them professing to be Christians and to believe all eight in the Judeo-Christian ethos, taking positions that I thought were so antithetical to to basic uh, Christian values that it was really quite upsetting and would have been shocking, but for the fact that we've heard it from these candidates so many times before. I'd appreciate your perspective. Yeah, uh, so uh, grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. I hope you can hear me okay. Um, what uh, I talked about last time with Buzz um, was some beginning tenets of progressive Christianity. And I was able to watch about a half an hour of the candidates last night. Um, and uh, then I had to take a break. Uh, it's good to listen to people who I don't agree with. I need to uh, get better at that. So I do it for that reason. And also for the reason of, uh, you know, just being informed. Um, and I would say w- one of the things, first of all, I want to say that Buzz said an amazing thing in our last show about spirituality. I don't know if you want to say that again, Buzz, or you want me to repeat what I heard you say, the quest, the big question you asked of your rabbi. Uh, the question I asked of my rabbi the week before my bar mitzvah, when that's the time when we're expected to ask an important question, I told the rabbi that despite the fact that every Friday night my family took me to synagogue and then there was time for silent prayer, I would close my eyes really hard and try to talk to God, and he never responded, or she never responded. And so I'm really not sure whether there's a God or not, at which point uh, the, the rabbi very thoughtfully, in a moment of silence, and said to me, it, to be a good Jew is to be a good person, and to be a good person, you don't have to believe in God. You have to understand that you're no better than anybody else, nor no worse than anyone else. You have to believe in people, and they have to believe in each other, and that's as holy as we can get. That's what the rabbi mm. said to me. Oh, that it, it's just it, this has just stayed with me since then. And I also think that you said, and you can correct me, that um, each person that that one needs to see each person as having the same potential for goodness that we have. That's right. That was okay. what Rabbi Herbert Hendel told me, and I've never forgotten that message. Yeah, it's a very, very deep, deep statement, and. Um, And how that connects with progressive Christianity, first off, is that that in progressive Christianity, uh, we are welcome to all, but we also, um, more importantly, we believe that there are many paths to, to spirituality, that ours is not the only one, that not everyone should be Christian. Um, And that's a huge difference from what I would call right-wing Christianity that says the only way to God is through Jesus. Now, that comes from, I won't go into all the scriptural 
connections to that, but it comes from very few words in the Bible that people have misconstrued um, from how Jesus was speaking to the people at that time. He was speaking not to make them exclusive, but for them to be particular about their faith in God, that they needed a lesson in particularity, uh, not exclusivism. So, um, so that I just think that that is a really important piece. So that uh, me as a Christian, I don't claim that my my way is the only the things that I believe are not what everyone else should believe. Um, in any one moment. And so, you know, you saw a lot of jockeying last night around the Christian, you know, I've been, I think Pence was talking about, I've been in this fight a long time for life and, and other people were saying similar things, trying to one up each other, right? Um, but the, the point being that we recognize that the spirit moves in beneficial ways in all faith traditions. So there's an ecumenical, spirit to progressive spirituality that sometimes is not there in conservative churches, although conservative churches often have embraced some of the uh, interfaith work that's going on. It's not like a, you know, an absolute there. We are speaking with Carol Bull, who is the Reverend at the United Church of Ware. We're going to take a quick break and we come back. I have this question for you, Reverend Bull. You and Mike Pence are reading the same Bible. How come it doesn't come close to meaning the same thing to the two of you? We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. The education assistance I received made it possible for me to be the first person in my family to go to school and graduate debt-free. That education helped get me to the first day at my dream job, a job that I can still hold while I serve part-time. That job, plus the other benefits possible from the Army National Guard, helped me become a first-time homeowner. Also, part of my role as a National Guard soldier means I know that I can be one of the first to respond and help my community if disaster ever strikes. I'm extremely proud that I get to serve my community. And that first step I took by joining the Army National Guard has made all the difference in my life. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com to find out what firsts are available to you in the Army National Guard. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk 
with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Before the break, I posed a question to Reverend Carol Bowles, the pastor at the United Church of Ware. How can it be that she and Mike Pence are reading the same Bible and interpreting it or understanding it in completely different ways? And during the break, she said, Bill, uh, good question, except it's wrong because we're not necessarily reading the same Bible at all. <laughs> Would you explain that, please, for us, Reverend Bull? Yes. Um, there are, I am not a specialist in this area, but I'll do the best I can. There are many, many versions of the Bible. Um, and Mike Pence and I are likely not reading the same version. So the version that uh, most progressive Christian, many progressive churches use is called the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, and now it's got a UP at the end updated. They just updated it uh, in 2022. Oh, stop there. Uh, Who gets to update mm -hmm. the Bible? It's the Word of God. It came down a couple thousand years ago. Isn't it just set, except for when King James got a group of people together and they decided which books would actually be the Bible? But Okay, but after King James did it, that's the Bible. No, I mean, you just get to... Yeah, yeah that's, the, that's the Bible as it was interpreted in the 1600s. Um, but there are many other Bibles that are used in a variety of churches today and around the world. Um, and um, so each church or denomination sort of, you know, looks at what, what Bibles are available. There's an inclusive Bible now that tries not to use a lot of gendered language. Um, even the new revised standard version that was updated last year, um, which we don't even have yet at our church. Uh, I hope we can get it. Um, they have even changed some, some gendered language as well. So um, in, in, the, in the progressive Christian church, we believe that God is still speaking. And what that means is that um, we need to reinterpret and relook at scripture today as it is in the current situation. Because as you know, life changes. You know, we have something called climate change, for instance, right now we need to uh, relook at the Bible when we're, when we're reading it and when we're interpreting it as pastors, such that people can relate to it with what's going on now. Um, and, and a lot of preachers are doing this, even on the other spectrum, but, but, um, but that's really important. And so some, some right-wing Christian churches believe that every single word in their particular version of the Bible is, is not, it's called inerrant. There's no mistakes there. It's all divinely inspired and, um, and one must go by everything in there. However, if anybody tells you that they obey every single word of the Bible, they can't be telling you the truth. Um, so hopefully they're not stoning their children, for instance, or throwing people into pits to punish them. Um, so uh, we all, no matter whether we're right, left wing in the center, we're all uh, making decisions about what in that text we take as truth and has relevance for us this day. And there's also a question of interpretation. I mean, could we point out the Bible was not written in English? There are 724 languages the Bible's been, I'm looking right online right now, in, interpreted in. Oh, nice. 24 yeah. languages it's, it's been 724. Written? Oh, so, wonderful. So, I, um, for example, let me, let me just make a very quick point. Uh, 
uh, Rabbi Justin David, when he was with us one day, said, look, we're looking at Genesis, and it uses the word dominion, as in uh, human beings shall have dominion over the earth. But dominion, as it was meant and then, was not control, some hierarchical control. It was meant stewardship, which is a completely yes. different meaning. So yes. talk to us about meaning. Yes. Well, that you're, that's exactly correct. And, um, and even like when we think about the word homosexuality, that did not occur in the Bible until the 20th century. I'm not sure I can go back and look at the actual year, but that word was never part of scripture. There were behaviors that people interpreted as homosexuality, but that word was never in the Bible until this century. So why does, how does that happen? Who picked the word homosexuality and stuck it in there at some point? You know, there's a lot of interesting theories on all of these items. And we have a lot of gay hermeneutical studiers who are looking into all of this kind of stuff. And it's wonderful because they get new scholarship, new ideas, and they find the truth about some of the words in the Bible. Okay. Can you tell us in 15 seconds who is the group that makes the who has made the suggested changes or made the most recent revisions? Um, yeah, so I'm sorry, I don't have the article right in front of me right now, but it's it's a an esteemed group of biblical scholars of all types. So to do the NSRV, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, they had people from Judaism in there. They had, they had mostly men. I think it was the last time they did it was mostly men. So that's changing over time. They're trying to include more women. Um, and they have a variety of faith backgrounds. So they have some conservative people, some li more liberal people, and, and that. We have to leave and it I'm, there. We have to leave it yeah. there. Reverend Carroll, thank you so much. This has been Have Faith. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. Do you use home oxygen? Do you know about the increased risk of fires and burns? No one should smoke in your home. There's more oxygen in the air, which makes fires burn faster and hotter. Furniture, clothes, bedding, and hair absorb oxygen and can catch fire more easily. Keep 10 feet away from any flame or heat source. For more information, call 1-877-9-NO-FIRE or go to mass.gov DFS. Breathe easy and use your home oxygen safely. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD HMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. Uh, and I just want to begin the show by, once again, all you farmers out there, the Massachusetts uh, Farm Resiliency Fund is now open. It is accepting applications. This is really important uh, for our regional farmers, the 72 farms that were decimated uh, at, a, at a minimum, they say, 72 farms by the uh, deluge that we've been suffering from this uh, this year. 
Um, on Monday, there was a gathering at Berkshire Brewing Company. Thank you, Berkshire Brewers, um, where Congressman Jim McGovern and uh, our local senators, our entire state delegation virtually from this region was there, uh, along with a lot of other dignitaries, to welcome uh, people to participate in this wonderful Massachusetts Farm Resiliency Fund. It is a supplement to the $20 million plus that the state has provided to compensate uh, farmers and to keep them from going further into debt. Loans don't help. Uh, they have enough loans as it is hanging over their heads. So farmers, you can contact uh, either CISA, uh, it has the application forms, the United Way of Central Massachusetts, I'm just going to read it, unitedwaycm.org slash and then you put in the, resilient, the Farm Resiliency Fund. You can get your application. They're due tomorrow, uh, at, I think by 5 o'clock, but uh, they're due tomorrow, August 25th. And they've already got well over a million and a half dollars of the $5 million they intend to raise. Um, and uh, that will be divided, I think, equally to all eligible applicants. So get your applications in once more to the... Uh, United Way of Central Massachusetts is called the Farm Resiliency Fund. And appropriate to that, apropos to that, Brian Adams, you have a really special guest uh, today for um, Talk to Talk. And who might that be? We're going to talk today with uh, Neely Simhai. Neely is the Director of Education, both Environmental and Agricultural Education, at a marvelous uh, uh, treasure in Northampton called Abundance Farm. For those of you that go know where the uh, Jewish synagogue is on Prospect Street in Northampton, there's this magical, uh, wonderful place tucked to the side that few people know about. And in this era of negativity and um, such difficult times, it is so marvelous to have a farm that gives out free food, that educates the community, uh, that incorporates Jewish faith and Jewish tradition into all that they do. Anili, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Brian. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So Abundance Farm, tell us what it is and what you do. Okay, thanks. So Abundance Farm is a community um, education and food justice farm. We are situated... Um, very close to the Survival Center, if folks know where that is, on Prospect Street, and right next to Congregation B'nai Israel, which is the synagogue. And um, we sort of form a campus of sorts, we like to think, where it's the farm, the synagogue, uh, Lander Grinspoon Academy, which is the Jewish day school there, and then the uh, Northampton Survival Center. And um, what we do is a combination of uh, a lot of education of various sorts, um, uh, space, a communal space of, that's kind of a commons for the, for the public to enjoy, including um, being able to come and harvest food from there um, for free. And, um, and so in, with those kinds of activities, we basically form like these three pillars of education, community, and justice. Food justice is one of those topics that is so hot these days. Everyone's mm -hmm. talking about food justice. What does that mean at Abundance Farm? And what does, how do you incorporate food justice into the work that you do? That's such a good question. So um, I like to think of us, and uh, you know, the first step is that we are part of the food security network, 
meaning that um, before we even get to the word justice, there's there's just the the basics of making sure that everyone is be able to eat and and um, feed themselves. And so we are part of a network along with the Survival Center and Grow Food Northampton and all these other fabulous organizations, MANA, you know, uh, all the other folks who make sure that people have a place to go um, and eat in t- and feed themselves in the way that they need. Um, we do it uh, in sort of like at closest to the, to the harvest stage, meaning our big program is Pick Your Own, where you can come and have a free Pick Your Own opportunity at the farm to harvest whatever is in season. Um, and then I think that the other piece for us that makes it um, not just an opportunity for to be a part of a food security network, but actually working towards food justice is this element of... Um, sort of the values or the attitude that we have about the folks who are coming and how we involve them. So um, obviously we want the opportunity to come and be a part of this endeavor to be um, um, participatory, meaning we want folks to feel like they both have... Their, what we like to say at Abundance Farm is it's a place where um, everybody has something to give and everybody has something they need to receive. And who are the folks who come? Because it's free food, right? It is free food. And, and, you can, and free food of marvelous, organic, uh, local, uh, you know, wonderful produce. Who is it that comes and takes advantage of this? Well, it is the community at large. And so when you come to Abundance Farm for Pick Your Own, you don't necessarily know um, anyone's social or economic standing. We're not asking those questions. And we are getting the full breadth. We are getting folks who hear about us through the Survival Center or through another food security organization and are coming because this helps them um, fill out, round out their grocery bags. Um, however, they're getting food already. Um, and we're getting folks who can are fully capable of going out and you know, paying for their own gardens and paying for their own groceries, but um, are looking for a community aspect. So it's a broad spectrum of um, social economic background, and it's a pretty broad spectrum, I think, of like community background in terms of like religion and whatnot as well. So we do get a lot of folks who come through the synagogue. It's like the farm that is attached to their synagogue that they know about, and their kids might learn there for one of the schools or their kids might be in preschool and get to go out on the farm. And so they also might come out and grab some strawberries. And then um, right next to those folks might be someone who came from the survival center and just heard about it for the first time. So it's a pretty broad spectrum of folks who take advantage of the opportunity. Nilly Simchai and, and Brian, I, I remember when I was raised Jewish and when I, uh, one of my favorite, maybe my favorite holidays by way of an honest admission was the Sukkot. Sukkot is a, celebrates the harvest. I think it's a week, five days after Yom Kippur, I think, is when it is held. And uh, you build a little structure and people, it, it's all, it's decorated with corn stalks and the like. But the most important thing, and the reason why I'm raising it, is my rabbi and my father always said, the food that comes from the earth is there for all of us. That's so right. everyone would bring into that Sukkot long before Monty's March, long before... The survival center, there we were giving out food to people who needed it, and people would come, take public transportation, and come and 
and take food from the sukkot, which congregants had built. I always loved that. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And it must be meaningful for Abundance Farm that the sukkot, uh, that time of the year. Absolutely. That we're coming up on that holiday season and sort of the culmination of it is Sukkot. And um, yeah, that is the moment where we also just like we were outside like eating and living in these like outdoor farm booths for a week. And that's the part where even more so you're just like everybody come on in and, you know, be a part of the merriment and the, ha- and the festivities. I-, I think that part of what Abundance Farm strives to do is to take something that might feel like some sort of future utopian idea of like everybody, like land being ownerless and everybody being able to like give what they have and take what they need, um, that maybe we feel like we're not like as a whole society able to do that all the time right now. And to say, well, for, for one little like acre of land and a certain amount of time, that you have, you get to come practice that here at Abundance Farm. It's a way of sort of like glimpsing what that can be like. And then our hope is that that then um, percolates out as a model for, you know, your own lawn, your own, um, you know, your own institutions, your, how you deal with legislation, et cetera. And are other synagogues, mosques, churches emulating what you're doing? Is this a uh, a, a model around for the country. Around the country, around. absolutely. I, I think the thing that I hear about the most are um, donation gardens, right? Folks who are growing food and then donating them to the survival center or the the equivalent, the food pantry of their area. There's a lot of folks doing that. Um, even here in town, you can see um, uh, the UU has like the UU is Unitarian. The Unitarian church, folks yeah. have a couple beds out front. I think. I was just at St. John, St. John's, um, where Mana is, and they have a couple beds out front. So everybody's doing it to some scale. Um, not everybody, but lots of folks are doing it to some scale. Um, I think that we have this unique blessing of location because we have this whole extra acre that um, is undeveloped, and that the synagogue made a real choice to not develop and to instead use it for this purpose of this farm space. Um, What's I think unique about ours is that people actually get to come and harvest and they get to have a relationship with the land and they get to, in a way there's like a feeling that it's almost like a throwback to like the biblical ideas of gleaning because you get to actually physically come and pick what you want yourself. And that's just that's because we have this blessing of, of location and land that we're able to do that. And speaking of location, it's so interesting because it's the site, which is on Prospect Street in Northampton, of the old poor farm. I'm doing quotation marks around poor for, I think, over a 100 years or so. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's really amazing. So I think from the mid-1800s to about 1950s, um, there was what was called the Alms House and the Poor Farm. There's about 17 acres, including the acre that we're on, and then going out into what's now the Barrett Street Marsh, that um, where there was a house and uh, there was land set aside, and it was our community's way of dealing with food insecurity for those hundred years, where folks um, could live in that home uh, and could farm the land and uh, use the food for their own needs if they were in difficult times and 
had no place to live and had no way to get food for themselves. Um, and I think that, that while there were community members at the synagogue who knew the history of the almshouse, a few of them, most of us, when we, most of us who helped be in the first stages of, um, like my colleague, uh, Rabbi Jacob Fine, who really helped start Abundance Farm, I'm not sure he even knew the history of the almshouse when he suggested it. And so when we learned about it, it was really, like, it still gives me goosebumps that that land seems to have somehow continued to be in that sort of service to the community without us even knowing it. And of course, before it was the poor farm or before Europeans were here, it was actively farmed by Native folks as well. We're talking with Neely Simhai. She is the Director of Environmental and Agricultural Education at an amazing place in Northampton called Abundance Farm. When we come back, I want to go back to Judaism and talk about this relationship between the Jewish faith and the work that you do on Abundance Farm. So stick with us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! Football season kicks off Saturday from New Mexico State against the Aggies. Join me and Patriots legend Pete Brock starting with a pregame show at 6.30 right here on your new home for UMass football, WHMP. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. Cabbage keeps for months. Corn is good for a day or two. And basil, make that pesto pronto. There's so much farm fresh food all around you. So stop at a farm stand, go to the farmer's market, and look for the bright yellow Local Hero label at stores and restaurants. You live among some of the best farmland in the world. The bright yellow Local Hero label says, this food is farm fresh. Use CISA's Local Hero guide at buylocalfood.org to find local food close by. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5-1400 WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. Well, what we're all listening to is, is a, a really wonderful, um, I'm just really excited to learn more about the Abundance Farm from Nilly Simhai. Uh, Brian Adams, thank you for bringing Nilly here. It's 
so much more I want to hear about the farm. And Nilly, thank you so much for being here. Again, Nilly is the director of environmental and agriculture education at Abundance Farm, this marvelous place tucked next to the Jewish synagogue on Prospect Street in Northampton. And I want to go back to how Jewish faith plays a role in agriculture, in food justice, in the work that you do. Can you talk more about in how, how Judaism is incorporated into Abundance Farm? Yeah, absolutely. So on the one hand, one of the things that the farm serves as is a Jewish education space for the synagogue and the day school and the preschool, meaning that's where we celebrate our holidays. You know, that's where we might have prayer. That's that's any, you know, Hebrew, any one of a dozen things that you might think of as Jewish education um, happens there in addition to all of the public programs. And there's a whole arm of what we do that's that's just that. Um, so, you know, we work with preschoolers on up through adults. Um, on the other hand, there is the, the part of the farm that is about the community at large and food justice. And where I would say Judaism plays into that is into the values that are really just baked into how the farm is set up and how we run our events and our programs. Um, there is uh, there's an, like a couple of different values that, that really play out, but maybe the one I could talk about is the value um, or the, the Jewish law of peya. Uh, peya means corner. And actually, um, if you've ever seen uh, an observant Jew who has like la long side locks, those are called your payas. And they comes from, it's the same word. It means the, you know, sort of like the corner of your head or the corner of your field. And the folks who wear their hair like that, it's actually to remember this law. Um, and the law comes just from the Torah, from the Bible. And it basically says, you are a farmer, which at the time that the Torah was being codified was, you know, 98% of all humans were farmers. So it was assuming that it was talking to an agricultural society. You are a farmer and you are gonna grow food for yourself, and also you must leave a corner of your field for those in need, the poor, the widow, the orphan, which was like the three categories that the Torah or the Bible always mentions as people who are powerless, right? The stranger, someone who's new in your community. So um, that idea of leaving the corner, and by the way, it's not the literal corner. It's, it turns out it's more like a section, a segment of your field. Um, that idea, in a way, it's like, well, what do we, you know, we're not all farmers now. How would we even do that? Um, certainly we're all, many of us are making donations to food security organizations, and that's a way, so you could say the corner of your field now is the, is the monetary donation that you make. Um, but part of what that does is it creates a remove between you and the folks who are in need, right? Who are, and, and there's an us and them dynamic that's created. Like, I'm not the one in need, and they are, and I'm leaving it in my field. Well, I think, Nili, Simhai, my, my memory is that what that what paya means is anything that comes from the earth is, doesn't belong to any one person. It belongs to everyone if the earth produced it. Is, do I have that wrong? No, that you you're not wrong about that. There and there's actually like another value that we really um, talk a lot about, which is called hefcare, which means that land ultimately is ownerlessness. It's yeah. it has an ownerless status, and that um, you know in in the Torah's language, the ultimate 
landowner is God, right? Like it's not me or you, but it's, you know, the divine. As Native Americans believe as well. That's right. right. We should be talking about stewardship of land rather than ownership that's right. Probably. That's right. And and um, even in like in Jewish practice, it, it, traditionally when it was agricultural and um, it was on the land, there was a year where where like all the laws of ownership like went away for the sabbatical year, and it really you had to you had to just like treat your field as fully ownerless. It wasn't even about corner. It was about like. All, everything is open to everyone and all the wild animals all the time. I want to I, I ask you about that. If everything is open to everyone all the time, yeah. are, there those, are there people who take advantage of that and taking advantage in a negative way? Um, we live in a society where people can be greedy. People can be have issues that sort of transcend their, this utopian community. Yeah. Um, does that happen at Abundance Farm? Really, uh, honestly, no. I, I think for the most part, I think it is a complicated thing that we're asking folks to do to self-decide how much to take of something. For the most part, you show up and there aren't quantities. You're just like, take what you need and and give what you can. And a lot of folks will bring us their vegetables as well. And we have a whole gardening program where people can raise their own garden um, in their own houses and then bring and share or bring and share in their community. So, but the question of how much do I take, it's really interesting because if you actually look at the Torah, this question has been with us from the beginning. How much do you regulate how much people take and how much do we give people autonomy and what do they get from that autonomy? Uh, Bill, you have a question? I do. I would like to know what you can tell us about the initial and original vision for Abundance Farm, which I know was Rabbi... uh, uh, David's and Rabbi Jacob Fine's vision, and whether or not what was proposed and envisioned has been fulfilled, and whether that vision has changed over time. Yeah, I, I I think this kind of speaks to the last question, which is that I think the I think that um, certainly it is an evolving opportunity to fulfill that vision. And I do think that the vision is in many ways meeting its goals. I think the the project is meeting its goals in many ways. Um, I think one of the things that's changed over the years is that initially, you know, in the first year or two, folks would come and pick any time they wanted and we'd be like internally in our own heads, Jacob and I, Rabbi Jacob and I would share that we had questions about whether it was appropriate for this person to pick. Like, I don't know, are they really food insecure? Do they need this? Like, should they be here? And one of the things that we grew out of was asking those questions that ultimately like what this space is, is a place for people to get to practice and to get to practice being able to say, I do actually need this for whatever reason. I need this right now today. And also... I can I can make sure that I'm leaving some for others as well. Just an opportunity as a space to do that is is really unique, I feel like. And does this serve just the Jewish community or does it serve the larger community as well? It serves the full larger community. Um, and again, we have folks who come who are, you know, kindergartners who want to pick up a few strawberries because their school is right next door. And we have folks who come from the um, housing authority. And we have folks who come through the survival center. And we have folks who just stumble on us on the bike path. And 
Yes. The whole world coming into this utopian place for free food and education and embracing the values of Jewish faith and Jewish tradition. Uh, Neely, for folks who are interested in learning more about Abundance Farm, interested in in, uh, coming or interested in donating, uh, where do they find out more info? Fabulous. Thank you for asking. So our website primarily is the first place to start. It's AbundanceFarm.org. And of course, you can follow us on social media at Abundance Farm. That's Facebook, Instagram, and all the good stuff. Um, And um, the main things that we want to invite folks to do is to come to our Pick Your Own opportunities for the fall. Um, That's starting, uh, starting next week. It's going to be on Wednesday afternoons, about three to six approximately. And um, and what we say is come through the first time during official pick-your-own hours so you understand, you know, the lay of the land. You get a little tour. You understand where the harvest tools are, and you see the harvest board, and you know what you can pick. And then you're welcome to come anytime after that. So people do come outside of those hours, but it's always great to come that Wednesday afternoons first. Um, and that's also when we have all our great um, community events. So we're going to have a pick your own pumpkin event this fall. We're going to, in a couple of weeks during the holiday of Sukkot, we're going to have a stone soup event. Um, we're going to be handing out a lot of medicines this fall. Um, so keep, get on our website, get on our mailing list and uh, follow our social media and you get you'll get invites to all those events. This little slice of utopia in Northampton. Neely, so, thank you so much for being with us. We've been talking with Neely Simhai. She's a director of environmental and agriculture education at this marvelous, magical place called Abundance Farm in Northampton. And I just want to say thanks for all that you do. It is, it thank is, you so much for inviting me to talk today, guys. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Brian Adams, always bringing us great guests. We're going to be right back with uh, all that jazz with Ruth Griggs and her guest, Joe Farnsworth of the Max Roach Centennial Celebration. We'll be right back. Reaching for the arms of love, living, dreaming, thinking of Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Tensions were high during a virtual public meeting last night of the Amherst Pelham and Union 26 school committees. Dozens of residents waited for members to approve minutes and returned to the forum to answer a list of questions from concerned parents. Many were unhappy about the rights of transgender students, Title IX issues, and the recent departure of Dr. Michael Morris. The agenda for the public meeting, which was scheduled to begin after only 20 minutes of closed session, included reorganization of the school committee, public comments, an update on the superintendent's departure, and filling the vacancy, as well as an update on LGBTQ plus supports. The Planning Board in Northampton will meet tonight with two significant projects on the agenda, Plans for an extended stay 109-room hotel on Conn Street at the former site of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, as well as plans for a new six-story affordable housing building behind City Hall will be discussed. The board also plans to discuss two other affordable housing projects tonight, the former Moose Lodge site on Cook Avenue and a project on Evergreen Road in Leeds that are both being developed by the city. 
A judge Wednesday sentenced a Springfield man to a state prison term in connection with a 2021 sexual assault on an Amherst woman. 32-year-old Michael Pope pleaded guilty in Hampshire Superior Court to three counts of rape, two counts of indecent assault and battery, and one count of providing alcohol to a person under 21 years of age. The crimes took place in an Amherst apartment. Pope was sentenced to three to three and a half years in state prison, followed by four years of supervised probation. Clouds on the increase this morning, scattered showers this afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Scattered showers this evening and then a heavier and steadier rain overnight, a low of 58 to 64. Rain tomorrow morning giving way to scattered showers in the afternoon, a high of 70 to 74. Chance for a shower or two on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Banking with Greenfield Savings Bank is more rewarding than ever with our free You Choose Rewards. You Choose is our debit cards reward program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards is free. And with You Choose Rewards, you'll earn points that can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Link your GSB Debit MasterCard with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, and PayPal. It's easy to start earning with You Choose Rewards. Just go to our website and sign up oh, for You Choose see. Rewards for your GSB Debit MasterCard. It's free. All you need to do is sign up and you'll earn rewards every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that earns you points every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. Sign up today at greenfieldsavings.com slash youchoose. Greenfield Savings Bank, member FDIC, member DIF. Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications now. With an average class size of 10, Smith Academy supports all students. They offer more than 20 clubs, 8 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work study, and internships, and free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College. Computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call us or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. Beautiful music for a beautiful segment. All that jazz. Ruth Griggs, who always brings us, well, the best performing artist ever. I always say that it's so special, and I'm so honored to have these various guests on. But well, this, this time we have two special names. Not only Joe Farnsworth, we have Max Roach in the name. <laughs> we we kind of do. So uh, Joe Farnsworth, it, Joe Farnsworth is... Um, is, is calling in from New York City, and he is going to be back in Western Mass, which is where he is from. He's from South Hadley originally, and he has put together a renowned quintet 
that is going to be the headliner concert at the Northampton Jazz Festival on Saturday, the 30th of September at the Academy of Music. And Joe Farnsworth has put together a band which is specifically and, and uniquely in tribute of Max Roach's centennial celebration. Who and deserves every right. tribute we can think of. So, so, Joe, first of all, thank you for putting to get together this amazing quintet featuring your bud, George Coleman, on saxophone. So, thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Scout of Northampton Jazz Festival, for actually reaching out and inviting me. That's the first time I'll be able to come back and play in my home area in probably 30 years, so it's very, very exciting. Oh, that's, that, that's wonderful. So, um, so Joe, I just wanted to s- just jump right in to what is the connection that you feel with Max Roach, who we are celebrating this year in his centennial? What would, as, a, as, a, as an incredible jazz drummer, what is it that you, that, that you are, what is that inspiration? And, and talk to us about it for a minute. And then we're going to play a little something um, that you did relative to Max. So tell us. Well, uh, my brother John Farnsworth had a group when I was a, a kid it was called Good Vibrations. He's a great tenor player and trombone player. And my brother David was in the group, and this is when they were in high school, and I was probably fourth or fifth grade. And they would rehearse at the house, and uh, they started rehearsing at 3 p.m., and that was the same time that my brother David's favorite TV show was on, General Hospital, if you can believe it or not. So he didn't want to rehearse. He wanted to watch General Hospital. We all remember General Hospital. (laughs) Yeah, it was an hour show back then, and I was able to play with the band, and John said if I was serious, I'd have to learn two tunes. Uh, One was A Slow Boat to China, the other was Sandu, and those were both with Max Roach on it. And I I started playing along with Max Roach as a child, and... How old Max were you, Roach. Joe? How old were you? Um, I was probably uh, was probably fourth grade, fifth grade, like 11, 10, year, 10 years old. Gracious. And, yeah, so I grew up, my brother David's a drummer, but I grew up listening to Buddy Rich and Sonny Payne at Count Basie. But when my brother John started mentioning uh, those two tunes, that's when I got on the Max Roach. And it was, I was just fortunate to live in South Hadley where Max Roach was teaching at uh, Amherst, uh, UMass, of Amherst, and um, they hired him because uh, they, uh, he, he, wouldn't have, he was representing black culture, and uh, there were some riots up there in the early 70s, and uh, UMass did a grand slam by hiring Max Roach to come and change that culture up there. That's right. And so my brother was, was driving me up there for my, the first time I met him. I, it was a drum master class, and it was me and John were the only ones there. And Max Roach was playing the piano, and we just watched him. Like I'm like, is that Max Roach? Why is he playing the piano? I, you know, and uh, and he stopped and said, um, "You know anything about Billy Strayhorn?" And we were both like, "No." And he was like, "If you don't know anything about Billy Strayhorn, then you don't really know anything about the drums." And then he kept playing the piano. That was my introduction. <laughs> well, we're going to play a really 1978. We're going to play a really quick clip of okay. your um, Max Roach um, showed me this little tribute to Philly Joe Jones. I think this is so cool. So ha- okay. take a listen, everybody. 
That was so. So, did did you learn that from Max Roach in 1978 after he was playing the piano? Oh no, I did not learn it that day. I, I did learn a, <laughs> a beat that he played with Charlie Parker, but uh, I learned that from my watching him probably ten thousand times in New York City. I, I just and want to point out. And, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Joe. I just want to point out for listeners because they couldn't see what you were doing. Your left hand—that was all your fingers on the snare drum. Your right hand—you shifted from a drumstick. To, to a brush and all these amazing little notes in there. That was yeah. astonishing to watch. I, I, since like, I would say since 1986, when I graduated high school from South Hadley High, uh, I've been living my life trying to play the perfect backstroke solo. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago I realized I just, that's impossible. But I spent, man, I spent, 30 years trying to play a Max Roach perfect solo because when he plays, it's perfect to me. Everything is outlined perfect. It makes sense. It sounds, it's, you know, sticks, brushes, hands, because he grew up watching uh, Papa Joe Jones and Sid Catlett. So he had that in his playing, and then he had uh, the modern style playing where he developed it, and he went on to, uh, you know, he was always changing with the times. So he had everything in his plane, and he used everything, and so that was that's what that was about. Well, that's sure. that's an incredible master, Max Roach, um, teaching Joe Farnsworth how to play the drums back in 1978, and that's been one of your life's missions. It sounds like ever ever since Joe, and we are so yeah. excited to hear some of your mastery at the Northampton Jazz Festival on September 30th when you are headlining the, the festival at the Academy of Music. And I just want to remind folks that, yes, Joe is going to be there, and, and you know, with the spirit of Max Roach coursing through every bone of his body and vein, but he's also going to have George Coleman, who is an NEA jazz master on saxophone, and if I'm not mistaken, about 88 years old on stage, which is a real feat, plus... Christian Sands on piano, who is just a huge rising star. I remember when he was a young kid playing with Christian McBride at the Iron Horse, and he's just done amazing things. Jeremy Pelt on trumpet, and Peter Washington on bass, who is a, a former uh, member of the Art Blakey Jazz Messenger. So these are all phenomenal musicians in their own right, let alone Joe um, leading them. So... That's really exciting. Joe, I wanted to um, just just have you talk a little bit about some of your other sort of music. I know you've m recently um, released um, a new album, In What Direction Are You Headed, right? Right. And uh, well, that's very different than the yeah. kind of stuff that you, you know, that you play, the bebop style. Talk to, to us about that style a little bit. Well, first and foremost, I have to go back. Uh, when Scout once again asked me to play there. This I is Scout Opatut, like, which Joe's yeah. referring to as one of our producers and a member of the board of the Jazz Festival, and it was her concept 
to have a celebration of Max Roach this year. Brilliant idea. So uh, I was, I mean, I'm, I'm still in shock. Like, I, I, I'm still waiting for, like, uh, what's his, the guy's name, Alan Fudd, to come out uh, with Candid Camera, <laughs> like, some sort of prank, like, hmm, well, I've been out here for so long, and I, this, I, this is too good to be true. But then, you know, I, I used to play with, a lot with McCoy Tyner, and he said, he's, one of the last things he said to me before he died was, patient, patient endurance attains all things. And I was really... When she called me, I'm like, I, I, I was in disbelief. And then it was like, wow. So someone reached out to me to headline the festival, which that's huge enough. And then it's like in my backyard, which is more than huge. And then it's like, and then put Max Roach on top of it. It was like the Holy Trinity uh, Festival playing drums, uh, my, my, my neighborhood where I grew up. And Max Roach. I spent so much time in Northampton at the, uh, um, uh, uh, what's the name? At the Iron, Iron Horse? Horse. The Iron yeah, Horse. McCoy Tyner, Art Blakey, uh, uh, Freddie Hubbard, so many people. Like, my brother would drive me up there. And for her, and then the Max Roach, I spent my life uh, uh, trying to be like him and play like him. I mean, it was not like. I was like, there was other drummers. I was, I was trying to be like Max Roach. I, I think a lot of drummers were. And so to be able to celebrate that, and then, and then I had a funny phone call from uh, my great friend Tom Rainey. He was like, so who do you think you're going to get? I'm like, friends, you have no idea who I'm going to bring up there because I'm coming full barrel, like as strong as I possibly can. And the first thing I thought of, I used to practice with Charlie Parker plays I mean, Max Roach plays Charlie Parker. And I also used to practice every day for years to Max Roach live at Newport. It's like 1957. And they play, Ruth, they play fast, and then they play faster, and then they play as fast as possible. And so when people ask, well, how do you play so fast? I say, well, I listen to Max Roach live at Newport. And who's on those records with George Coleman? And who's one of my greatest friends of all time is George Coleman. So I'm like, that has to be, because this is bigger than me, this whole scenario of Max Roach in Northampton. Well, so Joe, I, had, Joe I, yeah. I, I want to interrupt you just to, I mean, you, yeah. you come from royalty. Your father, uh, mm. Roger Farnsworth, was himself. He's, he's uh, an, an incredible trumpeter and, and band leader. You have brothers uh, who also uh, have played with some really remarkable people, but I want to know, being born in Holyoke, being raised in South Hadley, knowing this area as you did, and everything you were just talking about, the inspiration, how does this area, which is not, quite often people attribute their uh, musical prowess to the inner city where they were raised, but being raised here, how did that influence your your work? Well, it was like, it's like uh, you could be raised in South Hadley or... Uh... Des Moines, Iowa, it doesn't matter as long as you have access to the records and the, and the people that created it. And you also have to have some, uh, uh, some inspiration and people that can guide you. And I had that right there. Uh, so we have like 15,000 records in my house. And where I stayed in my brother's room, my brother David, who's a drummer, that was like Soul Train and Count Basie and Buddy Rich. And then my brother James's room, who played with Ray Charles, that was Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins. And then my other brother John's room, who took us everywhere, that was like J.J. Johnson and John Coltrane. So there was listening parties in each room. 
So I have like my own little 52nd Street. You know, I go from club to club. Ruth, Ru- Ru- we're looking for an invitation for dinner over to his house. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of things I want to say. You know, number one, I want to say that I, I really appreciated jazz and learned my musical taste from my brothers and sisters, too. Because yeah. I had older and and they just they just guided me. They just they just held my hand and walked me through it. And the second thing I want to say is that talk about a dinner invitation. Guess what Joe Farnsworth is going to have for dinner when he's here in Northampton on the thirtieth of September? He's requested Joe's Pizza. Oh, <laughs> of course he has. Hire George Coleman and get Joe's Pizza. I mean, but but who else from New York City that we're going to have on stage at the Academy of Music knows to ask for for Joe's Pizza? So that that's fantastic. You know, yeah. I I do want to um we're we're going to take a little break here, and I I want to just uh, remind folks that we are listening to to Jones Joan, Joe Farnsworth, who's kind of be leading the Max Road Centennial Celebration Band at the Academy of Music for the Northampton Jazz Festival on September 30. Get your tickets at the Academy of Music, and we are going to to play a little cut from a drum off that was at um, Emmett Cohen's um, wonderful Live at Emmett's Place. We're going to hear a little bit of the blazing speed and precision drumming that Joe Farnsworth just talked about learning from none other than Max Roach. Hang on and take a listen. listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, back to school, better. Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult hoping to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam. The Literacy Project offers free classes at five locations in Franklin and Hampshire counties. We also offer classes to help you prepare for college and to help you plan for a career. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. Find out about Literacy Project classes in Northampton. Call 413-584-6755. To find out about our classes in Greenfield, Orange, Amherst, and Ware, check us out online at literacyproject.org. 
The Literacy Project is the place to go if you want support furthering your education and accomplishing career goals. If you want to learn, The Literacy Project is the place for you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're back with our All That Jazz segment where Ruth Griggs has given us not only a person of international repute, but also he is homegrown here in the Valley. That's right. Joe Farnsworth, who is the incredible bebop and multi-talented drummer, international famous, is coming to lead the Max Roach Centennial Quintet for the Northampton Jazz Festival's headliner concert at September 30th at the Academy of Music. And Joe wanted to make sure that he uh, does a shout out to some of his Western Mass buds um, who were influences. So, so take us away on that, Joe. Yeah, thank you so much. I just wanted to uh, say thank you to the guys that really created a great art form in Western Mass and the scene like Archie Shep and the great Charles Greenlee, the trombone player from, uh, from Detroit. And a couple of local guys, like my band teacher, Thomas Boats, my father and my mother, of course, my brother John, and of course, my first drum teacher, Jim Cody, and a guy named uh, uh, Doc Bastrack and Art Gilmore, who used to hire me all the time to play in, in local gazebos around Western Mass, playing big band music. So thank you for those guys. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I I uh, I think it's amazing to think that you did get your start right here in the local schools and and in South Hadley and graduating from high school. Was there there was some good jazz programming there, or you took lessons independently, Joe? I was well. Well, was in high school, because of Max Roach, that led me to Tony Williams, which led me to the great Alan Dawson, who's a teacher out in Boston. So I was learning from him. But basically, it was just it was just the local scene that my brother brought me to, like Theodore's in Springfield, right? Uh, uh, Iron Horse in Northampton, and a great club in uh, Connecticut called um, uh, the Eight Eighty Club in Hartford. And plus, uh, those there was like this local. There was like all these little gigs in, in different towns, like Westfield, uh, Northampton, and East Long Meadow, and we'd play in like gazebos. And uh, and, and so Doc Bastrack actually gave me a lot of uh, a lot of gigs. I was in high school, but yeah, but those three clubs and they'd have jam sessions there. Of course, UMass uh, with Max Roach there. Yeah, but yeah. Well, there's still a really strong jazz scene there, and you are going to absolutely crush it when you are here on September 30th um, with that quintet featuring your buddy George Coleman and Christian Sands, Jeremy Pelt, yeah. Peter Washington, and I just wanted to remind our listeners that. On Saturday, this Saturday, in the Daily Hampshire Gazette, and I believe in the Greenfield Recorder, but definitely in the Gazette, is going to be a special feature all about Joe Farnsworth, who we're on the phone with today. So if you want to read more about his history and what he's going to do at the Jazz Festival on September 30th, you've got to pick up a Gazette um, on the newsstands or go to gazettenet.com. And you'll be able to download um, this this article about Joe Farnsworth, who is our late, uh, wonderful m- member of our own Western Mass community here, who's South Hadley, who's coming back um, on September 30th. You never know. The local kid that you see up on the stage from a local high school band or a local high school, you know, right now we have Gabby Thomas from Florence, who's running in the world championships. Uh, this area is just ripe with people like Joe Farnsworth, who... One day you're going to be 
some of the world's greatest. Absolutely, and we watch you them never all. Know. We watch them all the time, and it's wonderful to celebrate them at the jazz festival and the jazz strut. We have a lot of local artists and and young people that we love to watch. Um, we're going to be we're going to be closing it out now and thanking Joe Farnsworth for for being here with us today and for his amazing drumming and. We're going to um, play a little clip from In What Direction Are You Headed, which is the title track from his new album. Thank you, Joe. See Thank you on you the Joe. 30th of September. Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. WHMP. Massachusetts now requires you to recycle fluorescent and other mercury-containing bulbs. A tiny amount of mercury is an essential element in energy-efficient lighting. But when you throw these bulbs in the trash, they can break and release mercury into the environment. Do your part. Keep mercury out of the environment. Recycle used fluorescent bulbs. For convenient recycling solutions, visit LampRecycle.org or ALMR.org. Homeowners, visit Earth911.org for a drop-off center near you. Brought to you by the National Electrical Manufacturers Association. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's